0: Now, when it comes to the word globalization, certainly that we need to bring one critical country into our conversation, which is China. And given the fact today that China it's on this unstoppable path, politically speaking and also economically speaking, looking around post the pandemic that everyone is asking the question, what is the future for China? Or even better yet, how should we understand the current deadlock between China and the United States of America? But meanwhile, if we pay closer attention, we also need to understand this ongoing relationship between China and some countries in Africa. Even put in this bigger picture, how about the continent of Africa? And we know that China has been generating much greater noises in terms of investing into the nations in Africa and also building, uh, again, economic centers and you know political interests among the countries in Africa as well. And what about the reaction in return? How much do we understand the mutual benefits and also the mutual political interests between China and some countries in Africa? How about the future? Well, in in this episode, we're going to answer all the questions by speaking to one of the distinguished scholars, which is Dr. Joshua Eisenman. Again, Dr. Eisenman is associate professor of politics. His expertise covers international political economy, comparative politics, Chinese politics, U.S.-China relations. Of course, if you follow his work, his latest book, which is called China's relations with Africa. Well, Dr. Eisenman, and welcome to The Missing Piece. It's
1: great to be here, Will. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. Well, again, Dr. Eisenman, as we mentioned before, when we look at the word globalization, and too often we tend to focus on this current debt law between U.S. and China, but before we go there based on your book, again, touch on this meaningful and also critical relationship between China and also the countries in Africa. So my first question is, why is it essential and also significant for us to understand the relationship between China and some countries in Africa under the current Chinese leader? What do you say to that?
1: Well, it's, it, you know, it's, it's important to understand China's relations with Africa for a, you know a variety of reasons. Um, First, China's relations with Africa are prioritized by China more than academics would presume they would be. China has made Africa what it calls the cornerstone or a cornerstone of its foreign policy. This actually began under Hu Jintao, who who made these remarks in South Africa, but have continued under Xi Jinping. And, And although the relations... Uh, China has, of course, bilateral relations with nearly every country in Africa, except for one, Iswatini, they've evolved. This idea of Africa as an essential component of Chinese foreign policy has remained. And it's signified by the fact that each year, for over 20 years, the Chinese foreign minister's first visit every year is to Africa, or an African country. And so that has been a a kind of not-so-subtle signal that China prioritizes Africa. Um, and it does so for a variety of reasons, um, some of which are ideological in terms of China suggesting it is the leader of the global south, the leader of the developing world. This is something that goes back to the Mao era. Um, but it's also diplomatic in terms of African countries are a large voting bloc at the United Nations. They help China to secure its position in the United Nations. In 1970, China is fond of using, referencing these Uh, historical friendships, which would be a third reason, the historical relationships that China has on the continent, and that these things are constantly uh, referenced by both sides to suggest uh, that the relations are important um, and that they are kind of a bellwether of China's relations with the world. And so for what it's worth, um, I've noticed, and I think this has been growing over time, that the views of African diplomats As well as other countries in the global south but we're talking about africa in particular can often have more weight than those of the united states japan the eu Mm. etc right so um those you know china gives uh for the reasons i said and then i'm sure we could talk about others in terms of the us china rivalry etc as we go on in our discussion um gives a lot of weight to africa or more weight as i said at the beginning that we would suspect that it would give um, if you're just thinking of the world as a kind of IR theorist paradigm of mm. global players. And so what's the importance of these small, insignificant, at least insignificant in terms of uh, security, right? They're, China's security is not incumbent dependent on any African player, right? So so why does China spend so much attention? And that's one thing we get into the, in the book a lot, right? This mm. discussion of why is Africa important to China both politically and in terms of security?
0: Mm. You know, again, Dr. Eisenman, as we mentioned before, and also this is something that everyone knows, that this year marks the significance of the Belt and Road Initiative. And again, of course, under the current Chinese leader, One Belt and One Road Initiative is one of the major global projects. Again, in constitutes more than 100 countries. And previously, that even before the pandemic, we've seen a lot more countries in Africa actively participated and also joined this Belt and Road Initiative. Now, help us with better understanding. How does the Belt and Road Initiative actually create impact under the current leader of China? and spread throughout the continent of Africa. So in other words, why do more and more countries in Africa are very much interested in participating or becoming a member of the Belt and Road Initiative? Is it more than infrastructure built? Is it more than um, economic partnership? What is it? What is the motivation for that?
1: You know, the the Belt and Road Initiative and its relationship with Africa is is actually quite complicated because Mm. China had been engaging... In projects that are Belt and Road type projects, mm. which is a kind of, I, I you know, when I think of the Belt and Road, it's primarily a kind of a, a, a debt driven financing strategy. And China had been engaged in that in Angola and Ethiopia and other places before the Belt and Road was initiated. And then these things were kind of rolled into the Belt and Road later on, in part because when the initial maps came out in you know, showing us what the Belt and Road was, right? There were some initial maps, and and now it's questionable if, if Belt and Road has, I think, outgrown those maps in many ways. But the initial maps did not include Africa, or they only included Kenya. And so there was a bit of pushback from Africans who said, well, wait a minute, we are strategically important. You tell us we're, why aren't we part of the Belt and Road in a more robust fashion? I think they, to some degree, felt both that they had been the kind of precursor in terms of the thought development behind it, but then ultimately were not included in the initial design of it for whatever mm. reason. And, I, and I'm not privy to the initial discussions on mm. Belt and Road to the point where I'm going to get into that. But there was then some <clears throat> discussion, I believe, about how to include African countries in the Belt and Road. And then since that time, um, we've seen the the African countries become a more robust part of the Belt and Road, but again, like other Belt and Road questions, it's, it's unsure sometimes whether or not that was a kind of pre-existing project that was rolled into the larger scheme or that was initiated by the Belt and Road. These things can sometimes be unclear, but what, what is clear is that in terms of the politics of Belt and Road and the diplomacy of Belt and Road, uh, the, the African countries uh, have signed up um, and participated. Now, Belt and Road has evolved as all policies evolve over time mm. and has changed. So the initial thrust of, as I said, you know, debt-driven development has evolved into, I would say more political security uh, type of engagements. Um, And I would say that other concepts um, such as the community of shared future for mankind, um, the global security initiative, the global development initiative, these things have not over, not subsumed the Belt and Road, but they've advanced this kind of China in the Global South, China in the world, China's uh, uh, increasing engagement, increasing influence, um, and they've kind of moved that concept forward, that kind of broader concept that Belt and Road fostered. Now, the problem with the initial concept of Belt and Road was that and, and, and actually Ambassador Shin and I did interviews in Beijing in mm. 2017 and we heard this from a variety of people was that there was a concern about whether or not some of these projects were viable and there was a dispute at that time, a discussion about how much China could afford to take on unproductive projects and, how, how, and what that would mean for China's balance sheet and some people thought this was not a big deal, that China had, uh, you know, China's economy was big and this was fundamentally not all that much money. Others felt that it would be bad for China to hold all of this debt from around the world and have to manage all of those difficult questions. It, it was a was real varying views at that time. And what happened, and I think largely due to, you know, the effects of COVID-19, right, forced uh, contraction in the global economy, made a lot of these loans, which may have at one point appeared viable, nobody could predict COVID. And the, and, and so the, the 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 global economy receded, and it, it meant that a lot of countries from Sri Lanka to Zambia, et cetera, had a problem repaying their, their Belt and Road mm. debt. And so... China and these countries and the global institutions, I stress not the United States, because the United States is not lent. It is worked primarily in grants. So it's mainly Euro mm-hmm. bondholders, IMF, et cetera. And other uh, lenders who bought bonds they're they're working together right now and i'm not very privy to all of the detail of this mm. they're trying to come up with ways to alleviate the problem because we don't want a bunch of sri lankas that we just saw with the debt defaults and everything it's not good for anybody so right now china you know i think finds itself in a difficult position because it doesn't want to give up leadership in the global south it doesn't want to see these projects uh, 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 you know, it wants it's, it, it wants to have a healthy economic relationship where these loans are paid back and more can be made later. Mm. It doesn't want to throw bad good money after bad. Right. Mm. And that makes sense. But it's also politically difficult in these fraught times um, with the, the Ukraine war, etc., to have to manage all of this. And so the Belt and Road Initiative, you know, um, has evolved over time, uh, but it is also in many ways given China some some headaches that it's now trying to kind of work through. And so there is, I think, an understanding that the kinds of financing, the levels of financing that had gone out are not going to go out uh, or have not been going out. Um, and now at this point, China is in the kind of managing the current state um, now that doesn't preclude China from making additional loans. I just think it's going to be more conservative about those loans than it might have been in the past, given what we saw with the COVID and the and the Ukraine and the unpredictability of the world at this mm. moment, um, given tensions in the Taiwan Strait, et cetera. It may be more reluctant to 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 lend
0: out large mm. amounts of money. You know, Professor. Eisenman, again, one thing that's quite unique, because we know that when we come to economic agenda, as we mentioned before, some countries initially, when they joined Belt and Road Initiative, it's really, I guess, the word called reciprocity. So in other words, they're hoping that by participating or by becoming a member, they're able to receive the benefits. But meanwhile, we know that China lends a chunks of money to those countries But instead of paying them China back, which almost impossible, don't you think that really put those countries in a vulnerable position? So that will basically put China at more advantages. What do you say to that, to those countries that who can't really compensate for their effort, you know, by paying China back, but meanwhile they have to, I want to be careful, give up something so valuable in order to keep China happy or keep the Chinese economy sustainable. What do you say to that?
1: Okay, so I think that there's a... And China treats each one of these countries on a case-by-case basis. Mm. So it deals with them individually. And its frustration right now is that if it gives to one country then it may be forced into giving to others and then Mm. that may lead to a kind of a cycle which then leads to uh you know what we call a moral hazard problem right people don't think they have to pay back the money and then this becomes problematic Mm. um now what you're talking about has been called like the debt trap narrative right that china had kind of intentionally gone in and loaded these countries up with debt and then is like, ha, 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 uh, they didn't pay us back. Now we've got them over the barrel. Now we can get, mm. you know, the... now I was always skeptical of that narrative. Um, it was to me always a caricature because, as I said a moment ago, I think China wanted both. It wanted to have the political um, savviness to go into countries that weren't able to get financing from those Westerners who were, you know, discriminating against global South countries and perhaps even racist in their own right in terms of giving to people with darker complexions, right? And and China was going to meet that need, um, and and so do the do the right thing politically, but also do the right thing economically in terms of invest in projects that would get mm. yield returns and get paid back, right? But as we all know, it's easier to lend money than to recoup it, That's and so right. the. And, and so, what ultimately happened is that China, I think, finds itself in a, in a difficult position because it it got that initial political bump by making the lending. Everybody showed up for the Belt and Road conferences and everything, and was happy to take the loans. But when it when when between you know some projects not working out, you know, contingency, COVID, Ukraine, etc. They can't pay back. Now it becomes a political liability as mm. well as an economic liability. Mm. Um, and I can tell you there were people in Beijing who knew this, right, who told mm. this to Ambassador Shin and mm. I at the time during our interviews, which expressed their deep concerns, right? This is people in the U.S.-Chinese government, people mm. who worked in, in these circles. Um, and they expressed their, their concerns. Uh, but you know, ultimately, this is written into the Chinese constitution. It is Xi Jinping's premier policy. Mm. So it was going to happen politically. Mm. And it did happen. And now, for a variety of reasons that we've already gone over, it hasn't worked out well. And so now, kind of in the height of his in the light of history, we can say they were debt trapped. But at the time I don't think that was the intention. Mm. I don't. I think they didn't. I don't think they wanted these countries to not pay back. I think they wanted them. Mm. still, and I still think they want them to pay money back. Mm. Like, I think if China had a choice between A, keeping them on the hook with large debts, not getting service payments, or B, having loan service, I think they would choose B every day.
0: Of course, that's understandable. Um,
1: yeah. Which is not a debt trap, right? The debt trap would suggest that you're in the trap and unable to get yourself out, right? right? It wants these countries to get out. It doesn't want to. And so I think there is some frustration when, say, a Pakistan comes back in with its hand back out, and you know you're throwing good money after bad, but politically you feel constrained because you have a friendship as high as the Himalayas, and you have to deal with that,
0: Right. right? Well, Dr. Eisenman, I want to move on to the next uh, part of the conversation. You know, when we talk about propaganda, of course, we know that propaganda works. You know, we've seen of effectiveness historically and also, of course, in your book that you also talk about the comprehension of propaganda. You know, we talk about media propaganda, political propaganda. Now, when it comes to the purpose of propaganda, especially from the Chinese perspective, it's, I guess, most of us would, would say that to rejuvenate the country. So, in other words, we, we, we look at the model and then we've seen the uh, uh, promising speeches from the leaders. You know, we've seen how the media play out the roles. Now, the next question is are the African nations actually learning and understanding those? propagandists from the Chinese perspective. So, in other words, do you think that how much do, how much do the Chinese propaganda actually impact the growth and also the uh, the uh, uh, political or social change among the countries in Africa? What do you say to that?
1: So, the the concept of propaganda in China should be understand should be understood first and foremost as as not a dirty word, not a mm. bad word, right? The the term. Is not necessarily, quote, bad mm. as we might think of it in English. The word mm. propaganda, right, is considered has a negative, connotation. Right. it doesn't necessarily in Chinese. And so, you have um, propaganda, I think, perceived of primarily as just one of many tools of policy making mm. that china's uh can can use in order to achieve their objectives and in fact when china talks of its quote soft power propaganda is one of the, the the tools in the toolbox of soft power in a way that you wouldn't necessarily consider it to be primarily from like a liberal democratic country which invests very little mm. in, in, in in external propaganda if anything Right, so mm-hmm. it's important to understand this different perception, and then there's a. It's important to also understand that um, Chairman Xi Jinping has been very clear in his instructions to quote tell a good Chinese story. Mm. So he is instructed, and he's gone to the propaganda organs, he's visited them, and he's spoken to their leadership and their staff directly mm-hmm. and explain to them the importance that they serve in, in helping China to tell its Chinese story, right? Mm-hmm. He's done this. And so he's added that political impetus um, to it. So it's not a kind of second tier thing. It's it's part of an important part of China's foreign policy, according to, to president Xi, right? So, um, and then to understand that the propaganda then has many different components to it right so we tend to think of propaganda in terms of media propaganda Okay, mm. this is our big con you know we think of propaganda we think of the china daily we think of the people's daily mm. we think of cgtn we think of the kind of main organs of chinese right propaganda however chinese propaganda and we go in the book also into we do we talk about media propaganda of course but we also go into educational propaganda and cultural propaganda. Mm. Um, and so these are, I would say, the three main components of China's Africa-focused propaganda work. Mm. Um, educational propaganda <clears throat> can be anything from short-term training programs to even degree-granting programs, scholarships, etc. And we've seen... For the numbers we have, which stop in 2018, we see a ski slope in terms of African participation, in terms mm. of percentages, in terms of raw numbers, uh, until 2018, uh, when the numbers stop. And I have no doubt that they include in 2019 as well. After that, you know, COVID takes its hand, and we don't know. Mm. Um, it went down. I mean, everything went down. To COVID. <clears throat> Excuse me. But then you also have, you know, sports propaganda. You have women's groups. You have uh, a linguistic. Uh, uh, language learning contests. You have healthcare. You have uh, um, within, you know, it was these Chinese cultural centers as well. You have the Confucian uh, institutes, um, and so you've got a whole kind of litany of different pr- elements of China's propaganda. And during the COVID nineteen, we saw healthcare propaganda in terms of the the COVID nineteen vaccines and masks, etc., being delivered. And so. Propaganda has numerous, almost unlimited elements that you can include. There's even been Muslim-to-Muslim propaganda Mm. in terms of different groups. The important unifying thing is, though, these things are run by the party. They're under the leadership of the party. They are political in nature, um, and they have an intent, and that intent is to improve the image of China um, and to increase collaboration and improve China's influence in the country or increase it. Increasingly, however, there's also been in an effort to tell a good Chinese story, also an effort to juxtapose that with liberal democracy Mm. and say, in fact, China has a special sauce that in terms of governance that's better than liberal democracy. And this is an evolution because during the Hu Jintao era, in our first book, Ambassador Shin and I were very clear that we did not think that China was intentionally aggressively coming after the United States. That book was published in 2012. Mm. In the new book, however, we find ample evidence that China is now in part of its propaganda effort is an anti US or anti Western or anti liberal democracy campaign that says not that China's system is just as good, but no, China has something that's better mm. than, the, than the other. Right. Mm. You know, personally, from a strategic perspective, I don't, I think this is, um, I don't, I, I see this as a strategic negative. My personal view is that it locks China into an anti US per percent- campaign that is not always going to be um helping china in a geostrategic sense. So um you don't when you ask yourself will there be US china rapprochement and you look at all the anti-US sentiment being pushed out in china's propaganda outlets in africa and other global south areas you think it'd be very difficult because you'd have to change the propaganda line So this evolution in the propaganda line in many ways has locked China into a more hardline anti-U.S. position than might be ideal for China under the circumstances. Now, I'm not going to tell China what's ideal for China. We'll leave that to the leaders of China who Mm -hmm. probably know better than me what's best for their country. I'm not trying to tell them that. But what I am saying is at this point, being as clearly anti-liberal democracy as the current line is means that they would necessarily need to walk that back somewhat as they did, by the way, in the 70s, right? China mm. walked back its anti-U.S. line and increased its anti-Soviet line. We saw this occur, right? That's not impossible. But it's it, we do have historical precedent. But the point is it makes it that an evolutionary change would have to occur, whereas in the previous um, iteration, before it was distinctly anti-U.S., China had the flexibility, you know what I mean? It could put out an anti-U.S. story and then, and then not, right? But now it's it's very clear, and that I think is – Um, Something they're going to have to deal with one way or the other.
0: Mm. Well, Professor, I want to move on to our conversation. Again, the news just broke out that um, current Secretary of the State Tony Blinken's is scheduled to visit China if everything goes well um, very soon. Again, I think it will be in two to three days. Now, when we talk about the current debt law between China and the U.S., Of course, that directly can influence the relationship between China and African countries as well. So my next question to you is, how, how do you think understand, or how do you think the role of US and China when we look at the African continent? Are those two countries actually competing with each other? Or those two countries are actually seeking partnership When we talk about helping with the current political instability uh, among the countries in Africa or economic uncertainty for some countries in Africa. So what is the role of the two countries? Is it partnership? Is it competitors? Or, hey, listen, those two countries are running two completely separate errands. What do you say to that, Professor?
1: So, you know, there has long been a lot of discussion about U.S.-China cooperation in Africa. Mm. But it's never really materialized in a serious way. I mean, there's been... I, I mean, how many grants were probably given out for different people to have conferences about this? And mm. and ultimately, the fact that the U.S.-China relationship has soured means that even if there may have been some minor opportunities, mm. they, they fell victim to the larger trends in the relationship, which were you know, bigger, that they were swamped, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, by the wave of, of of negative negativity in the bilateral relationship. Now, I am happy to hear that Blinken will go to China. I think mm-hmm. that's a good thing. Um, um, you know, I hope I'm going to China too soon as well. So um, I think that the, what is really unfortunate, and I'll just say broadly, is that As a student, as a young student, I was able to study in China. Mm. And during that time, I was able to fall in love with China. Mm. I was—I fell in love with with all different aspects of China in the late 90s, 2000s. Mm. Um, And there was something special, and there is something special about the country. And what's unfortunate is now we've got only a few hundred American students who are able to have that experience that Mm. I had, Um, and very few Africans as well. So... Um, I think it's, it's so important that the people to people and the educational relations remain, right? Which is why I want to go to China to teach and mm-hmm. work with, um, you know, professors there as well, because I believe that that's a really essential part um, of the relationship. And I think it's important for, um, you know, China's relations with Africa as well. So that being said, um, African countries um, can benefit uh, from the rivalry, um, or they can suffer from it. Mm. And I think that this is a case-by-case basis. Um, and you can find different instances where countries have taken advantage of strategic competition uh, between superpowers, certainly during the Cold War, um, but also certainly cases where they suffered. Right now, for instance, if you look, there's, there's a controversy going on right now Hasn't gotten any headlines in the U.S., but it's but in South Africa, it's all the news, right? Which is the BRICS summit mm. um, supposed to be held in South Africa, but there is a, an arrest warrant for uh, Putin uh, for uh, you know the heinous crimes of abducting Ukrainian children. Okay, and 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 I mean, what could be worse, right? I mean, I guess a lot could be worse, but right. so this this is uh, you know mass kidnappings of children, right? And God knows what else. And um, and so he's got a um, ICC warrant and the South Africa is part of the ICC, mm. um, the International Criminal Court. China is not. Right. Mm. So there's a discussion right now about whether or not to move the BRICS summit from South Africa to China. Mm. And there's a lot of South Africans who want to hold the summit and not hand over Putin. Right? There's a, this has become a thing. And so mm. this is just one instance, right, where you can see a country now, the biggest country in Africa. Right, arguably, I mean, Nigeria, I mean, we can have a debate, but South Africa, one of the biggest, most important hub countries in all of Africa is now caught diplomatically between the West, which wants uh, Putin handed over for his crimes, mm. and China, and of course, Russia, mm. right? And so you can see here how uh, this tension, uh, you know, puts this smaller country, although a bigger African country, in, in a tough spot, and there's a, it's, it's controversial about what they'll do. And this is just one instance, right, where Uh, The the struggle and the tension between the two can lead to the uh, problems in these countries. However, from an economic perspective, I don't see any rivalry, much to speak of at all. Mm. Uh, China can import raw materials from Africa, produce finished goods and export them around the world along the global supply chains. I mean, helping there, you know, uh, and and as long as there is demand, people will buy them. Right. Mm. So you import, you know, so I don't see economic tension. Mm really. The U.S. is not a serious lender like China has been for infrastructure. Um, the U.S. does not have many firms active in certain spaces that Chinese firms are in. Mm. And so I don't see the economic competition mm. um, as much. But you do see, as I mentioned with the South Africa example, a kind of geopolitical tension. But then you look at a place like Sudan and China does not seem very involved in solving That's that That's right. Um, But the U.S. is right. Um, So in this case, China would also benefit if, Mm. if, if the U.S. were to be successful. Um, and, you know and others right in negotiating a, a peaceful resolution to what's going on in Sudan which I'm no expert but um, and China would benefit from that mm. right if the US were successful right for because China has investments in both South and North Sudan and um, wants to continue to do business um, and so we so each instance as I said from the beginning it's a case-by-case business mm. and we need to kind of evaluate whether or not these interests are, are are are, are um, collaborative, or whether or not they're conflictual, almost based on the kind of specific on the ground questions. So in South Africa, you have conflict, and in Sudan, you have, you know, possible, uh, mm. you know, cooperative instincts. Whether or not that actually happens, you know, ultimately the people in Sudan and South Africa are going to make their decisions. They have agency in their own countries, and so they're not going to be. I mean, they may be influenced, but I don't. But the the decisions will be taken by these respective, you know, local actors.
0: That's right professor again we know that china has been well known for not meddling with any international affairs because again and the same principle that china hopes other countries will understand and also obey as well now i want to wrap up our conversation by asking you the last question again we know when we talk about the economic growth and also we talk about this a political ambition for china today another organization or another what we call the powerhouse which is the g7 now again not too long ago the g7 uh the seven largest the countries and powers got together the leaders they tried to design another program to counter china's political and also this economic growth now professor again from your perspective briefly how should we understand the plan under G7 when, when they talk about to balance the economic agenda and also expect China to f- play by the rules or follow the regulations? And also they're trying to come up with better plans to counter China's influence. How much do we understand that? And also how effective do you think that could be if the plan were to roll out? I haven't
1: seen a specific plan plan. Mm. I mean, I've seen statements made. And there's no doubt that the g seven is concerned, right about what it calls, you know, China's coercive, uh, economic influence and diplomacy. Um, and has voiced that concern. It has also voiced the concern about China's continuing support for Russia and Ukraine. Mm. And in the G7 summit that just happened in Tokyo, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky was there um, along with the leaders of whatever, at least half a dozen countries, Indonesia, et cetera, et cetera. Right. We're all there. Right. And so I think that if I, and again, this is, this is tough, right. But to me, if it, it is a sure sign that China is increasingly isolated among the leaders, uh, the global leaders, right? Mm. Whereas in the global South, China may still be welcome in many quarters that the strategy that has been undertaken has had costs. Mm. And I think that there's a lot of broad-based disappointment, Mm. Like, like almost like straight sadness because there's a lot of people, and I count myself among them, who invested quite a lot in in working with China and understanding China and sending our students to China. And to some degree, we're just really, we feel that, you know, China didn't have to choose a conflictual path, right? Mm-hmm. That, that there was another way that could have occurred, right? That when we look at the tensions in the South China Sea, and we look at the tensions in the Taiwan Strait, and we look at, um, you know, the camps in Xinjiang, and we look at what happened in Hong Kong, um, you wonder if 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 China had taken different choices, because a lot of that has really scared the hell out of the West, yeah. right? And, and, and these police stations, and the Huawei stuff, and, the, you know, it's, it has been a real... Um, yeah, you know, the spy balloon, right? I mean, you know, to some degree, if China hadn't, I mean, it wouldn't have had to, you know, play ball, but it, it was a bit ham-fisted is my point, right? Mm. China development 2025, right? There was just a lot of these things going on that were 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 feeding into an anti-China narrative that that gave a lot of oxygen to people who had been waiting to suggest that China was a threat, mm. right? And so, my you know I think that this is a kind of a broader feeling, and increasingly in Europe as well of oh, why did it you know have to go this way like mm. but it did, and here is where we are right and um, and so I think that there 's a kind of a reluctance but a kind of acceptance now, mm. a broader acceptance that China, especially in places like Canada, for instance, where there 's been a variety of scandals going on with where there had been a, a kind of a, a mollifying effect that they may have had mm-hmm. on U.S. policy, mm-hmm. where they may have said "You know, the, to the U.S., don't be so assert-. Now those countries in many ways are driving the U.S. to become more assertive. Mm-hmm. I mean, China may misunderstand this. China may, and I've heard statements, believe that the U.S. is dragging Vietnam into concerns about China. I can assure you it's very much the opposite in many mm-hmm. cases, where smaller countries, Australia, South Korea, Vietnam, Canada, uh, Lithuania, mm. right, et cetera, et cetera. Smaller countries in the in the Western orbit are in, ha, have come to the United States and raised levels of concern. And I think the the clearest concern that we've seen, and the clearest indication of this spookness, right, beyond like the Pew data, which is mm. just shocking in terms of, of views of China collapsing, right, has been the South Korea, uh, uh, Japan. Rapprochement that's going on right now, right? I mean, given the, the the history there of World War II, of comfort women, of all this terrible stuff, of colonialism, okay, within the lifetime of many people, not many, but some Koreans, the fact that we now see a rapprochement is is is, is got it has it is concerning in Beijing, mm. right? And so I think this is an indication that um, it's not just the G seven that there's. There's a larger trend going on. And the China would do well, in my opinion, to recognize that and make a course correction in its foreign policy. Now, they have other plans, perhaps, and I'm not mm-hmm. telling China what to do. But going to your initial question, it's not just G7 v. China. I think that that would, you know, just like US v. China now is not is a kind of a mischaracterization to some degree, because in many ways, China is is very lonely now. It's a lonely power, right? Mm. Um, and that's what Richard Nixon talked about many years ago, about that we don't want China lonely and isolated and, mm. and like chewing on its discontents, right? We want to bring China into the global community of nations, right? And and it's not too late for that, okay? But that decision is one that must be taken in Beijing, Right, if China chooses China's path. China's not a weak country. Mm. China is a powerful nation, second biggest in the world. Whatever is done is, is the majority of the decision is going to be taken in Beijing. If, if China decides to attack and go across that Taiwan Strait, I assure you Taipei is not attacking mainland China. Mm. right? We know maybe it would have in the past. The reality of the situation is that the timing of that conflict, it will be wholly taken in beijing if a Mm. conflict breaks out it will be because the chinese side decided to initiate that conflict i think we can agree right Mm. the japanese are not attacking right there's no scenario where the malaysians or anybody or the u.s is attacking china so in this way china is the master of its own fate Mm. it has the power that it didn't during the century of humiliation Mm. and this is something that's very important Um, and that's why so many countries in the qi seven are pleading with china to to make those decisions in a way that keeps peace and prosperity
0: at the forefront. Well, again, Dr. Eisenman, I agree with you. I mean, as we mentioned before, it's not too late to repair this broken relationship. And of course, at this moment, as we mentioned before, if the current Secretary of the State, uh, and uh, uh, Tony Blinken, successfully makes his trip to China, and again, for everyone's benefit, for every single country's benefit, we like to see the reconciliation, at least this handshake between the two countries. Well, again, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Dr. Joshua Eisenman. And again, Dr. Eisenman is the Associate Professor of Politics. And his expertise covers international political economy, Chinese politics, U.S.-China relations. And I strongly encourage everyone go online to look for his latest book, which is entitled... China's relations with Africa. Well, Professor, thank you so much for taking your time to join the show. It's been a pleasure, and we love to keep in touch with you and have you back on the show as we continue to monitor and also follow the progress of those international affairs. So thank you so much for doing this.